Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows that there's a bunch of savages in this town. Here is the captain. A bunch of true crime savages. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are drinking zombie dust by one of the best in the business, Three Floyds Brewing Company. This intensely hopped and gushing undead pale ale will be one's only respite after the zombie apocalypse. This pale ale is hoppy, clean, and smooth, garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. And let's give some cheers to our friends who helped us out with this week's beer run. A big cheers to these savages right here. First up. Cheers to Jessica in Reeds Spring, Missouri. And a big We Like Your Jib to Christy in Oregon City, Oregon. How about a little pleasing thank you to our friend Amy down in Bulldog Country, Mississippi. And a big shout out to Crystal in Cookville, Tennessee. All right, Captain, here we go. We have a big cheers to Laura B. in Newark, Delaware. And last but certainly not least... We have our friend Kelly in Rancho Cordova, California. Thank you to everyone that helped us out with this week's beer fun. Yeah, say it with me, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. For all of our old episodes, check us out everywhere. And if you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs, check out our bonus show on Stitcher Premium. It's called Off the Record, and that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. by the name of Ammo. And uh, he was a cross-trained to be a cadaver dog. I was contacted by the Hammond Police Department and they took me to a house and they said that they uh, had a suspect and they had several missing children in the, in the area, missing boys in the area, and they wanted to know if my dog could uh, go into the basement of this house and conduct a search for him. Mm-hmm. So I put the dog into the basement and gave him this command to search. And he went to a corner of the house in the back corner of the basement 
And he was trained to do what's called an aggressive response, which is to scratch. Yeah, you know, like he's digging. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't do that. He went to the far corner of the house and just stood there and barked. So I pulled him back out and I redirected him again to do a search and he went back to that corner and did nothing but bark. So I uh, told the Hammond detective that he's not trained to do that. He's trained to give a, an aggressive response. However, prudence would dictate we better bust up some concrete here and take a look because there's a reason why the dog won't leave this spot. So I cleared the area, <clears throat> and about a week later, I was contacted by the Hammond police to come back again. Went back to the exact same residence, and what they had done is they had taken a uh, drill and started tried to drill through the concrete. And they discovered that they went down about 10 inches, and there was absolutely, they, they was still solid concrete. So uh, they went back to the other side of the basement and did the same thing, started a borehole there, went down about six, eight inches, and gave up. So they asked me to send the dog again, so I did. And this time the dog went to the hole in the, it would have been the uh, southwest corner, and he started scratching very aggressively. So I pulled him off, and the detective told me, he said, man, I didn't get that on videotape. Can you do it again? And I said, sure. So I got the dog back. He got the videotape up. I sent the dog, and the dog, instead of going back to that hole, went to the other hole, which would have been about halfway along the west wall, and started scratching there. So they got that on videotape. So after that, I told them that uh, they should break up. They have to break up the concrete now. You know, that we've got an, uh, an aggressive response. So I cleared, and uh, I don't know, about three days later, four days later, they contacted me again and sent me back to the same house. Huh. This time when I got there, they had a concrete expert who had determined that this guy had, whoever the guy was who put this concrete in the basement had used bags, and this was David Most. And he had used he had to use like some phenomenal amount like 80 bags of concrete or some phenomenal amount they also brought in a forensic entomologist who found evidence of coffin flies in the spider webs in the basement coffin flies are a species of fly that's indicative of rotting flesh but it doesn't have to be human it could be chickens pigs beef anything like that but they did divide they did find evidence of coffin flies in the spider webs in the basement okay the, uh, they also brought in a pathologist out of Indianapolis. And what they had done is they determined that all across the back of the basement, the concrete was 16 to 18 inches thick. So they moved out to where they could uh, get a little bit, th the concrete was thinner where the older concrete was, which was only several inches. And they broke a hole probably about the, a circle about as big as a garbage can. Okay. And, uh, they had me send the dog. Well, as soon as I sent the dog, the dog dove into the hole and started throwing dirt like crazy, digging very aggressively. So we pulled him out of the hole. And uh, once I got him out, then the pathologist knelt down and started feeling underneath into the dirt. And he felt, he said, what feels like a human leg joint, knee joint encased in a plastic bag. So they broke up the, the concrete on the southwest end and they discovered two bodies there that were wrapped in plastic and buried under 16 to 18 inches of concrete. They then went to the west end, where the, or the uh, north end of the west wall, where the dog had made this second alert on the different hole, and they broke that one up, and they discovered the third body. The third body was, uh, this guy had apparently had to fill a, a, a bathtub full of a blue lead-based paint, and he had just had to continually dunk this body in this blue lead-based paint because the, the body was in, completely encased in paint about a half inch thick. And then it was wrapped in plastic also. I don't know, maybe that was something to try and keep this, the smell down. I have no idea what the, what the paint was for. And... And I do remember that they found, uh, when they did x-rays, they found things inserted in the bodies through the rectum, like bottles or coat hangers or something. I don't recall exactly what. <clears throat> and up in the room, they did discover a map with uh, X's on it where he had, uh, 
we don't know, but assume that he had gone to various places across the country on his way up from Texas. And these X's, we don't know what they meant. The voice you just heard there in today's trailer is that of canine detective Dale Bach. As you heard, he was brought in to help a local law enforcement agency in Hammond, Indiana, to have his canine search a home, more specifically the basement of an apartment. In this particular situation, the canine is acting in a cadaver search role brought in because the search for some missing teens led a Hammond Police Department detective to that apartment. So how exactly did we end up here in the basement of an apartment in Northwest Indiana? Well, the investigation started on September 10th, 2003, when the phone rang at the police department in Hammond, Indiana. A woman named Lynn Smith reported her 16-year-old son, James Regani, was missing. And I apologize if I did not pronounce that correctly. It's Regani or Regani, I believe. Oddly enough, another mother, Holly Gilkinson, had also called and reported that her son, too, was missing. Her son is 13-year-old Michael Dennis. He had not come home the night before. Okay, we have two missing teens here, Captain. A guy, James, 16, another guy, Michael, he's 13. Most of the time, what this is going to say to small town police is, well, we have a situation where a teenage boy got fed up at home, or maybe he's super rebellious and decided to run off for a little bit. Yeah, or he stayed over at a friend's house and forgot to tell his parents. The problem with this situation is we have runaway notes that were left for the family to find. The other problem that we have for law enforcement is, look, there are no dummies. They're going, wait a second, two kids run away on the same day. These two kids were friends. And from what I could find, there was no mention of, oh, I'm running away with James or I'm running away with Michael. Right, but that's a possibility that law enforcement has to look at. Of course, they're going to look at that situation and they're also going to wonder if, in fact, these two were runaways. As said, the boys' parents produced runaway notes from their sons, which said that they had run off, but these notes were very vague about where they were going. There were a few different places listed in these short notes. Some people say runaway letters. I've reviewed some of these. These are very short notes. The Regani parents also received a voicemail from a phone number that was later traced back to a rest area off of I-65 near Roselawn. I do not have any details about what that voicemail was or who they believe the the voice was. I I have to believe, Captain, that right. they the voicemail came from their son or else it would have been highly suspicious from the get. Right. Now, these notes, we said they were vague. Well, they were. So the notes were simple. They were as such. I'm tired with the way things are at home. I'm leaving. I'm heading to Chicago. Side town. Um, one note said, I'm moving out to either California or maybe Washington State. Haven't decided yet. I'll come back when I turn 18. Hmm. So when you get your freedom, you're going to come back. Well, if you are to believe that these kids ran away, they're, they're leaving the notes to make sure mom and dad don't think that they're dead and murdered, Right. uh, that they're showing enough care for their parents to let them know, Hey, I took off. Here's the reasons why. And here's some places that I might go. One of the notes said that they were going to Texas. The weird thing here, Captain, is I do not know how many notes were in the possession of the parents when they made the calls that their sons were missing to begin with. But what I do know happened was there were multiple notes left by both boys, short little notes that they seem to like kind of hide around their homes. Like an Easter egg hunt. That, you know, mom would find one 
and then maybe a couple days later find another one. That's that's very strange. Very strange. And then second of all, like let's to forsake a confusion. Do you know if these were like actual like full pages or? Again, these were very short notes. Maybe yeah, a maybe a paragraph, down. a couple sentences at, at best. But what I found incredibly strange, and I'm sure this weirded out the parents big time, is let's say that James left three different notes for his parents to find, or that Michael left three different notes for his parents to find. So to save everyone the confusion, we'll just say runaway notes A, B, and C, right, in each situation. Well, when mom would find runaway note A, it would say, hey, I've, I've been fed up. I can't take it at home. I don't like school. I, maybe I'm going to Chicago. I'll call you in a couple months. Well, then a few days later, she finds runaway note B. It kind of contradicts everything that was said in runaway note A, where it's, you know, the, the next note may say, hey, I've got a job out on the West Coast all lined up. I'm running away out there and I'll reach out to you when I turn 18 or I'll come back when I turn 18. So this is going to be weird. One for the parents, they got to be highly alarmed and two for law enforcement, because if you are going to try to figure out where these boys went, especially a situation with the 13 year old Michael Dennis. Well, law enforcement knows that these guys know each other. So I think once you find multiple notes at one location and then you find multiple notes at the other location, then you go, hey, these are connected somehow. Right. And so then you now have to determine, one, did either of these boys go where they said they were going, which there was communication sent from the Hammond PD out to these other jurisdictions. But again, it's very vague. You can't just, it's not easy to reach out to every jurisdiction in California or Washington state and say, hey, do you got anybody that matches this description running around there? Right. But we also don't know if the locations match up with each other. What will be easier for the Hammond Police Department to determine is, are these boys still in the area for any reason at all? When kids are not getting along with parents, they say that they're running away. The first people you want to talk to in your investigation are these kids' friends because kids tell their friends more than they tell mom and dad. So police start asking around, trying to determine whether these two boys were in fact runaways or if something maybe happened to them or if they were still in the area. They came across some kids who were buddies with the two missing boys. They told them that Michael and James spent some time hanging around with an older guy in the neighborhood that summer. This was a guy known as Crazy Dave. Mm. Locally in the neighborhood, he's known as Crazy Dave. So not someone you want to hear your kids are hanging out with if you're parents of Dennis or Michael. Yeah, and is he like really crazy and spells it with a K? What they are able to determine is these kids are hanging out with this dude named Crazy Dave. Of course, detectives want to figure out who the hell is Crazy Dave. They yeah. start asking around and they learn that Crazy Dave's real name was David Edward Moust. Michael Dennis had met Moust at a community pool that summer. Oh, my God. No kid should ever meet a doll at a pool. Well, it, we, yes. Weird, 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 weird. But the other thing that we need to teach our kids even and remind our teenagers is there's no reason for adults and children to be friends. There's no reason for adults and children to for adults to give gifts to children. There's no reason for adults to ask help from a child. There's no reason for adults to ask a child to keep a secret. These are all huge red flags. Now, if we're talking about somebody that's friends with mom and dad, you know, there are some some ways to get around that. But in this specific situation, <laughs> you can get around that it makes seem like the person's trying to do something bad. Now, there's plenty of people that are become mentors to you know younger. But that's Kids. all stuff that you should share with mom and dad. Right. This isn't things that you should keep from your parents. If if an adult is is a friend with a child or asking a child for help 
asking a child to keep a secret or giving them gifts that needs to be shared with mom and dad, because that's not something that should happen. It's not something that's normal. Right. So what we have here is now detectives are going to return to the families of these missing boys and say, Hey, look, this is what we've come up with so far. Some of the other kids have said that they may have been hanging out with this older guy that, that we know is crazy Dave. And we've now figured out his real name is David Edward mouse. And he spells crazy with a K and Dennis's mom, Michael Dennis's mom, Holly confirmed that her son did spend a lot of time with mouse. She was aware of this saying that her son spent time with him. And on one occasion, he came home with a pair of new shoes that he said Dave gave to him. And another time he came home with some stereo equipment. Maybe she was hopeful that it was like a Daniel son, Mr. Miyagi type relationship. Like they're just sitting around learning karate. So these detectives learn that the boys like to hang out at mouse apartment. This was on the second floor of a house located at 4933 Ash street in Hammond, Indiana. The people they spoke to said that they had been there six or seven times that the boys had been there about six or seven times. These other teenagers are telling police that mouse would give them beer, cigarettes, and money. You know, other teenagers had gone to this guy's apartment. Mm. Detectives ran David Mouse's name through the system and discovered that he had a record. Surprise, surprise. So they decided to pay a little visit to Mr. Crazy Dave Mouse and stop by his apartment. So Detective Ron Johnson of the Hammond PD visited this David Mouse at his place on September 18th. He found Mr. Mouse in the backyard smoking a cigarette and enjoying a beer. Mouse did not seem nervous at all at the appearance or the arrival of the officer. Well, to be fair, he was buzzed. And he didn't feel nervous at all answering any questions. In fact, Detective Ron Johnson said Mouse was extremely friendly and very courteous to the detective. So much so that he permitted the detective to look through his apartment. You know, a guy shows up with no warrant. He says, sure, I got nothing to hide. I can answer all your questions. Go ahead and look through my apartment. So the detective is in there. He's asking mouse questions, opening closets and checking under beds and such. But there was no sign of either of the missing boys at the apartment. Well, if you take a look at David, he, he looks like if you take Nick Nolte Nick Nolte and the Ultimate Warrior had a baby that came out a little disheveled, maybe drinks too much, smokes too much. How could that baby not come out disheveled? Right. That's that's what he looks like, though. So, nevertheless, police... Fat neck. He has a big fat neck, too. Police remained suspicious of David Mouse, who had just finished parole for a previous crime. And Detective Johnson says he was... Even though this guy was nice, answered all of his questions and such, he said, I was suspicious of him right away. And this is a judge a book by its cover situation because the detective says straight out, Mouse was, quote, different. And that boy is different. When asked later, well, what do you mean by different? He says, if you would have seen him, you would have said he's different. Yeah. He- Almost looks like he's stuck in the 80s. Well, police staked out his place, hoping to see some sign of these missing boys, right? That maybe they're coming back and returning to his apartment. Maybe they're just running around, having a good time. And this is somebody that they could either crash with on occasion or go back to his apartment to party. Yeah, that makes sense. They contacted the other jurisdictions that had been mentioned in the runaway notes. We already discussed the complications with that asking if anybody had seen these missing boys. Now you have a situation where you probably are believing that the two boys left together. So that helps you a little bit when you reach out. You're not just looking for one teenage boy. You're looking for two teenage boys at this point, which may be a little easier. Meanwhile, local prosecutors, I love when people do good work. I love when people say, you know what, we're, we're going to do our jobs. We have a, a service, a community to take care of and to protect this guy. Even if he doesn't know anything about these runaway boys, 
he's a problem. So the prosecutor, local prosecutors, filed a misdemeanor charge of contributing to the delinquency of a minor against David Maust. This was on October 2nd. This was because of what the other kids told the police about the underage beer drinking, pot smoking, and things that were going on at Mouse Place. You know, he's providing underage kids with beer and marijuana, and they're hanging out at his place. So Mouse posted the $300 bond, and he was released. He continued to talk casually with the detectives about the missing boys, but not really admitting anything at the time. The police contacted the landlord and the owner of the house where Mouse was a tenant. Right. They found out from this owner, his name was Bill Hinton, that Mouse was employed. He was an employee at a trophy shop that the homeowner owned as well. He also told them. <laughs> Hold on a second. Because <laughs> David looks exactly like a guy that works at a trophy shop. Like, <laughs> what's his job? He works at a trophy shop. He also told them that Mouse had done some work in the basement of the home, mm. that he had repaired some seepage on the floor. So Detective Johnson went back to the home to inspect this work that Mouse had done on the basement floor. When he went to the basement, he discovered a new concrete pad in the southwestern corner of the basement. This is interesting, and I know a lot of people are probably saying, well, why wouldn't the detective have searched the basement to begin with? I think it, the situation here is, the way that it was explained to me, is that there were multiple tenants living in this house, in these different apartments that were broken up through this house. When the detective was first questioned Mouse in, in the backyard of this property, and Mouse said, yeah, sure, go ahead, look through my apartment. I'll, I'll be happy to take you inside and show you everything. Come on in. It's a nice place. He's simply showing him his apartment. There are spaces throughout this home that are common spaces that are shared amongst the tenants. Yeah, shared by the other pedos. And so the detective probably didn't check the basement because either A, he wasn't suspicious of the basement because it was a common place, or B, he didn't feel that he had permission to do so because there were multiple tenants and Mouse was not the owner of the home itself. It's not like when the police officer comes up and starts talking to David and, and they go, hey, do you mind if we search your apartment? And he goes, come on in. It's a nice place. It's not like you can just spend days in there. Well, not only that, I was having this discussion with somebody a week or so ago and had to point out that a really good detective and a really good officer, especially if they're in a situation where they're suspicious of the individual that they're talking with or suspicious of a crime scene or potential crime scene, right? a good detective and a good police officer is always working with the knowledge of knowing that the most important thing here is that I secure a conviction that whatever my actions are will later hold up in a court of law. And so if I step over the line at any point and this guy is my guy, like I believe him to be, well, I might run the risk of losing that conviction in the court of law. So what good have I done? None. With the permission from the homeowner, now Detective Johnson is in the basement and he he's checking out this new concrete pad that was poured in the southwestern corner of the basement. I found a source that said that the, the pad was determined to be approximately 8 foot by 5 foot and 12 inches thick or 12 inches deep. And the homeowner did consent to not just a, a quick look-see at the basement, but he also consented to a detailed search of the basement as well. And this comes about because Detective Johnson says, look, I was down there in this area. It would be very common in this area of the state of Indiana. It would be very common for people to repair their basements in this way to pour additional concrete. And that is so that you have, if you have a washer and dryer in the basement that you are placing it on an elevated platform on right. a platform so that if you were to have your basement floods, 
then these items are not getting wet because they're elevated. Yeah, that makes sense. So at first he says he wasn't suspicious of the concrete pad, but then knowing what he knows from living in the area, he applied that to, oh, wait a second, the water hookup is way over here. So if that was the purpose of this concrete pad, it made no sense at all because you would want to create that platform as close as you could to the water hookup. He's super suspicious of this. So the police decide that on November 20th, this is Detective Johnson and Commander Dale Bach of the Lake County Sheriff's Department. Again, he's the one that you heard in today's trailer. They come back on the 20th of November to search the basement again at 4933 Ash Street. More like Ash Street. (laughs) This is with the trained cadaver dog. Now, the dog showed considerable interest in the one end of the basement. And this is the corner with the concrete pad. The dog is telling you, you've trained me to find cadavers. Yeah. I'm telling you, I believe that there's a dead body underneath this concrete in this corner of this basement well like you said with this canine unit like he's trained to be a cadaver dog but he's also trained to search for people's scents so i wonder if they thought maybe he was confused well every canine unit is different it it all goes to training some have the ability to be trained in different areas some don't i i don't know the specifics of this particular dog um but in this situation we do know he's being used to find a a cadaver he's not he's not being brought in there to find a missing person do you want to set your child up for success of course you do that's why you need to check out ixl learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use and even the kids that i've recommended it to their parents have told me hey captain thank you i was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but ixl could do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead do so with ixl learning make an impact on your child's learning get ixl now and true crime garage listeners Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, everybody. Cheers to you, Colonel. He's back. I'm back. Everybody's back. (laughs) <laughs> everyone's in the face all right uh the dog again the canine officer showing considerable amounts of signs that hey he's detecting something underneath the concrete in the corner of this basement yeah but he's not acting as normal right right he's supposed to he's trained to give a very aggressive response to when he finds when he's hitting on something and that's not the response he's giving here you have to wonder if, in fact, if the canine unit, if the officer is correct, people are getting confused because some people are like, you know, I'm, I'm referring to the dog as the officer because right. he is an officer. So we'll pay him his respects. Um, if he is. Well, and we want to be respectful just in case he's listening. That's right. Um, just in case he's listening. Um, Got him. But if, in fact, the, the canine officer is correct that he, that there is something underneath that concrete, I don't, again, I don't know this particular dog. I do not know the training. Is he giving a different response because it's a faint? Right. You know, is is the detection faint? I, I think we, we can just move past that because whatever the dog was doing to indicate that there was something there and that they should do further searching of this area. It was enough for them to bring in technicians and they're going to drill some sample holes in the pad. You don't want to go in there and jackhammer the whole thing up. If you don't have to, you can just drill some holes and see if there's anything down there. This portion of the search was conducted on December 5th. When they drilled holes into this concrete pad, captain, Coffin flies flew out of these holes. Coffin flies. Coffin flies are indicative of there being a decaying body. Now, it doesn't have to be human. It can be animal or or something else. But they would not be there if there was nothing for them to be, this is pretty gross, living off of. 
So on December 9th, after. Hold on one second. Let me finish my lunch. Now the police have probable cause to to tear up the place, right? So on December 9th, just four days later, police brought in equipment to take up the concrete pad or concrete slab. Very quickly into this search, they found two bodies. Which is two more bodies than are supposed to be there. They were able to determine almost immediately that the the bodies were that of teenagers or young men. Right. These two bodies that were found were wrapped in plastic and tied with cord and tape. But one second, I mean, we have to applaud the officer, both officers. I guess the, the dog is officer. But you have to applaud where your dog is trained to make a certain reaction. He doesn't react like he's supposed to. Gives you an odd reading. But you go, hey, better safe than sorry, right? Mm-hmm. Might as well dig this up and and yes yeah nobody wants to find anything but at the end of the day when you have these missing kids you're trying to find answers so right away you're looking for two missing teens and you find the bodies of what you can determine to be either teenage boys or young men right so when you think about it captain these other teens the the ones that told police and detectives that these kids were hanging out with some guy named crazy dave with a k these other kids were in fact quite lucky that they did not end up killed yeah you know these were teens that hung out with this crazy dave as well or at least one had been to his apartment these kids knew about crazy dave knew about the activities going on at dave's apartment with him providing alcohol and such to the teens one of the teens in particular says that he was with James and Michael on what is believed to be the last night that the two were alive. He told the detective that he went with James and Michael to Dave Mouse's apartment and he left at some point in the night. And he, he said that when he left, James and Michael stayed there and they were alive, of course, when right. he left the apartment. So immediately we have Dave Mouse, who we, we, we need to arrest this man. So he was, in fact, arrested on that same day. This is, again, December 9th, 2003. They pick him up while he's riding his bicycle home from work. But here's the troubling part. I think finding the two bodies in the basement is the troubling part. But riding a bike to work is kind of rich man, poor man. Rich man uses it for exercise. Poor man uses it as a vehicle. Look, nothing against this Hinton character, but I can't imagine that the job at the trophy shop pays very well, and he's living in a rundown apartment. <laughs> this is not a guy that's riding a bicycle for exercise. Yeah, but you could always like use the line when women came in, like, why do you work at the trophy store? I'm looking for my trophy wife. But <laughs> here's the troubling thing, Captain. This uh, is- You mean the two dead teenage bodies buried in concrete is not troubling enough. It is not. Oh. The troubling part here is the two that were found in the basement were identified via dental records. One was the missing Michael Dennis that we were looking for, you know, as anyone would expect, but the other was identified as 19 year old Nick James. Oh, so not the other kid that they were looking for. No. Nick had been missing since May of 2003. This is December of 2003 when they find the bodies. The more you study true crime, the more you just see similarities in so many things. Uh, look at the type of victim is teenage boys. Gacy would put them in the crawl space. This guy seems to just be putting them into concrete. Nick had been missing since May of 2003. He, in fact, worked at the Trophies R Us shop with David Maust. And Nick was reported missing by his girlfriend. But you said Nick was 19? Correct. Because you'd think, okay, look, law enforcement has two missing kids. That You'd think that they would go, oh, yeah, there's also another missing kid from the trophy shop. Oh, they hang out with Crazy Dave. Where does Crazy Dave work? The trophy shop. You'd think they'd be putting this all together. But, maybe they, but what I'm saying is maybe they didn't put it together in that manner because... He was 19. The, right. The, that's where my head went immediately. But 
the other thing too is maybe they did put it together. It's just now you're looking for a 19 year old as well. I don't know that you're announcing that to anyone uh, when you're surveilling David Maust. So Paul Goddard was Nick James's best friend, the 19 year old that was found in the basement. He said that the two of them spent a lot of time with David Maust. And he said that David was generous, giving them cash and beer and said, quote, he never asked for anything. I just thought that he being, you know, David was being a nice guy. This is what Paul told the Munster, Indiana Times newspaper. Yeah, he only asked for hand jobs. So then police excavated a third body. It was proved to be James Regani, the other missing teen. Now, the cause of death for the three victims, this is per the, the Times again, quote, Lake County Coroner David Pastrick said he had not ruled out suffocation and strangulation as a cause of death for Bragani and for Dennis, the two that police initially started off looking for. Right. They said that Nick James died of blunt force trauma to the skull. David Mouse was charged with three counts of murder. They also charged him for having a fat neck. The Hammond neighborhood went into an uproar over this crazy Dave guy, right? Because David Mouse is living in their small town and unbeknownst to them, he's, he's living there. But the reason why they're in an uproar is it turned out that David Mouse had a very serious criminal record. Right. In fact, he was a twice convicted murderer living in their neighborhood. Wait, wait, wait. He's been convicted twice of murder? Correct. And he has he lives in an apartment with other people and has the stellar job at the trophy shop? <laughs> yeah, this this highly <laughs> Desirable I'm job. Just say, I'm just job. saying that he's he's living better than some people. Living better than the colonel. I wonder if he gets unlimited trophies, like unlimited free trophies. The idea that this dude was out free, living in the small town, and hanging out with kids terrified mm. the residents, many of whom said that they planned to move away from the area, even though David Mouse was now behind bars. In all fairness, eventually the state of Indiana would pass a law requiring that convicted murderers must register with local officials when they moved to a new location. So David Mouse was not from this area. Well, thank God they corrected that. If sexual offenders have to register on a sexual offender's website or whatever, murderers should have to do the same. So Mouse now in handcuffs. Well, he was in for a six-hour interview session with detectives. Mouse confessed to the killing, saying that others had helped him commit the murders, even naming his landlord as one of the accomplices. Uh, again, again, I, I, the comparisons with this individual and, and Gacy are very similar. I mean, Gacy, once he was arrested, was saying, hey, it wasn't just me. There was multiple people involved. Maust also implicated his old cellmate from time served in the state of Illinois, and he implicated another neighborhood teen, saying he helped as well. I don't think that he's sitting there saying the four of us killed these three guys. I think what he's saying is is a situation where he's telling a story and it's changing as we go along here. Yeah, I'll give him a trophy for being a douche. But in the end, Captain, he admitted to all three of the murders, and he said that he did all three of them on his own. Now, for some reason, we have a written statement pertaining to James Regani's murder, but not the other two. So the details are a little tricky on some of these murders here. Yeah. David Mouse signed a confession stating that on September 9th, 2003, at his apartment, James Regani had been drinking beer and doing shots and got sick. And at 11.45 p.m., David Mouse took a rope and put it around James's neck and strangled him until he was dead. He then wrapped his body in plastic and took it to the basement 
and later put cement over his body. But he was, as said, I mean, he, he he's telling these stories, but it's very obvious to detectives that this dude's responsible for all three of the murders. A Lake County prosecutor, Bernard Carter, said, quote, basically he drugged them with alcohol and the date rape drug and then strangled them. The first one, the first victim, he means, Nicholas James, he hit in the head with a baseball bat and then strangled him. He said, meaning David Moust, that the first one was too bloody of an attack, so he decided to strangle the others. So he's saying that he killed all three of them the same day? No. Okay, so at different times. Nicholas James was a separate situation altogether right that when he went missing back in may that's when nicholas james was killed right the other two boys were killed september 9th of that same year but what mouse is explaining to detectives in his confession that look i i I hit the one over the head with a baseball bat and realized later that's not a good method of killing because now i got all this blood everywhere that i have to deal with yeah, everybody listen to that statement. We have a murderer telling you that if you hit somebody in the head when their heart is still beating, there's blood everywhere. It's too bloody of a scene. Again, con- connect the dots in other cases, like Sean Benet Ramsey. If she was hit on the head first, there would have been blood everywhere. David Mouse admitted to detectives that he would on occasion visit the basement to continue to talk to his victims after they were buried in the floor. What? You heard me right. So he's drinking. Yeah, I'm going to go down to the basement and I'm going to go talk to the concrete because he's missing one of his buddies that he killed. I'm reading between the lines here, Captain, but what I think actually went down is I believe that they found all three victims at the same time when they were digging up that slab because as said... It's determined or reported that it was eight foot by five foot by 12 inches deep. That's not that big of a concrete slab. And we have three victims in that concrete slab where I think that we have the speed bump in the investigation is that two of the bodies were wrapped in plastic that was tied with rope or some type of cord. Right. The third body for... Uh, reasons only David Mouse could explain was completely dipped or, you know, I guess it wouldn't be dipped, but uh, covered in lead-based paint, blue lead-based paint. And Mouse said basically that he took the body of this victim, placed it in the bathtub, covered it in this paint. And we're talking about Uh an inch thick, covering the body at all points. He states that uh, he did this so that it would conceal the odor of the body, that nobody would be able to smell or detect the dead body. I guess uh, the smell of paint is better than dead body. As for the runaway notes, detectives believe that Moust lured the the boys to his apartment, of Mm -hmm. course, with promises of some kind of trip. Okay, Remember, we talked about them leaving notes for their parents, this misdirecting the investigation or hoping that the parents don't go looking for the kids. They figured out that Moust was the, he spearheaded them leaving these notes for their parents. This was all his idea. So to me, this is looking more and more like a premeditated murder situation. Right. What he said to these, these boys is that, Look, I I have access to a lot of money. I have access to a lot of drugs. I need you to run some errands for me, and you can make a lot of money in the process. And hold on a second. If any, any young teenage boy is listening and you hear this from somebody, remind yourself that he, he rides a bicycle to work. He works in a trophy shop, and he lives in an apartment with multiple people. And his only friends are the friends that he's giving booze to, and those individuals can't buy booze. I wouldn't really believe that he has connections to a bunch of money somewhere, because if he did, he probably would have called in those favors by now. Well, if you go off of what I said earlier, you're already in the clear. 
adults and children do not need to be friends for any reason at all. Yeah, my motto is no friends. Okay. Um, so what they were able to determine is that Mouse told them that, hey, I'm going to give you a vehicle. And I've set up this vehicle so that we can conceal drugs in this vehicle. And then you're going to drive it out to the West Coast. Basically, you're going to make a delivery for me. And the people there are going to pay for all these drugs that you deliver. You're going to bring the money back to me. And then you're going to get a big hefty cut of everything. Right. And this is how he enticed them and talked them into leaving these notes for their parents. So this was all very much planned out on his end and even planned out by the kids themselves because they go over there thinking, all right, well, we're friends with this guy. We're going to go on this trip. Yeah, it's, it's kind of sophisticated for such a disheveled individual. The other interesting thing, too, is that he told investigators that he took the two boys with him to breakfast at the Roseland, I'm sorry, Roselawn truck stop on September 9th. Classy. And this was, they were talking more about the trip at this breakfast. So you can piece this together. This is where that voicemail came from. Right. This is the same location that they traced it back to. So while they're there, he had him so convinced that he had one of the kids call home and leave a voicemail at that time. So, so we have three bodies and we know that David was in prison before for two other killings. Mm-hmm. So we have a total of five victims. Correct. I still don't understand how he got out of prison. Well, that's a great segue because that's what I'm going getting to right here. So the Indiana prosecutors knew that Moust was a suspected serial killer, right? He's eligible for capital punishment. So the prosecutor, Prosecutor Carter, requested that the death penalty be on the table for the three murders. So on October 31st, 2005, Mouse took a plea deal and admitted guilt for all three murders. So crazy Dave Mouse was sentenced in December of 2005 to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And in his guilty plea, Mouse requested that he be held in isolation away from the general population of the prison. Now, as the captain just mentioned, this monster had killed twice before. So who was David Moust and why was a twice convicted murderer out living in a nice community? David Moust was the second of four children born to Ava and George Moust on April 5th, 1954 in the state of Pennsylvania. PA. In 1961, the family relocated to Chicago. That next year, Mouse's father left the family. David was only eight years old at this time. Right. There's a lot of uncertainty about Mouse's early life and exactly how screwed up it was. So he, he how was, screwed up he was. Right. So he was eight when his father leaves. But do we have any indication that there was? physical abuse or sexual abuse or, or verbal abuse that we don't know of as far as the ages from ages zero to eight. But again, it's very difficult in this situation to figure out how screwed up his family life was or how screwed up he was. And if who was responsible for that, his, his parents were both, I'm, I feel very fine and confident with saying that both of his parents were dysfunctional. According to the Times, George Moust was orphaned at age 12 and spent the rest of his life, rest of his juvenile years, I should say, in foster homes, some that were described as sexually abusive. Ava Moust, his mother, spent a month in a mental hospital in Pennsylvania, this right after David Moust's birth. Hospital records describe her as, quote, psychotic. Her upbringing took place on a Georgia farm and has been reported as miserable and depraved, according to her son's later defense team in court writings. 
His mother was beaten by a stepfather with boards and chains and treated as a slave by her mother. That sounds awful. With his father gone and a mother that, there's no more simple way to put it, a mother that either did not want him or could not handle him, his mother, David's mother, requested that he be institutionalized at the age of eight. Or, I'm sorry, at the age of nine. So per the Times, quote, Chicago State Hospital records show that David Mouse yearned for a relationship with his mother, but she showed little interest in him. When the staff at this state hospital pressured her to take David Mouse swimming with a sibling and a later stepfather, she told the hospital, I'm not taking him. I wish he would drown. Uh, burn so whether ava loved david and did the best that she could for him or whether she was the reason that he was screwed up depends on who you're talking to or where you're getting your information because ava his mother gave a lot of interviews over the the years and in some she says that david mouse was a pretty good kid and that she loved him she told the chicago tribune that she loved her kid and says that when David's father left the family, David started acting out. Things got bad pretty quickly. His little brother, Jeffrey, recalls David Mouse beating a squirrel to death with a bat in front of his younger siblings. There's also a report that, that David Mouse as a little kid set his three-year-old brother's crib on fire and tried to drown him in the park. Maybe when your kid does that, you just lock him in a cage and forget about it. It's a very difficult situation, Captain, because as said, was he the actual problem or was his childhood that was not carved out by him the actual problem? Yeah, it's the chicken or the egg. Because, well, but it goes back to who you talk to and where you get your information from. And even with Ava, who gave multiple interviews over the years, she gives a different story in different interviews. He was a good kid. He was a normal kid. And it wasn't until he was nine that he started acting up and I had to get rid of him. In other stories, he was born bad and he was trying to kill his little baby brother and and drown his baby brother from a very, very early age. It's not both. It's, it's one or the other. Yeah. I don't think she's going to award anytime soon for mother of the year. It can't be both. These are her words. These are words she chose to to give to these people. That he was fine. He was completely fine until his dad left. Then he went off the rails and I had to get rid of him. In other interviews, she says that he was born bad. That he was evil from day one. And that he was trying to kill his little brother at a very early age. That's not right. the same story. So right. when I say it can't be both... We don't know the true story. Maybe it, maybe it was both. I'm saying these are her words. She Pick a story, lady. It's one or the other because they're two very different stories. The other thing that you have to keep in mind, too, is back then, yeah. if you just didn't want a child for any number of reasons, you could institutionalize him. I'm glad that wasn't around when this I was, was a kid. I, I wouldn't say it was a common thing, but it was not... It, it wasn't that unheard of. Yeah. And the reason why I question some of this is that we have the, look, he's he, at nine years old. David Mouse is sent to the Cook County Mental Institution. And he describes this location as he called it the, the snake pit. And the situation was this, that He's he's in this state institution or the county mental institution. There was another child that was there at the same time as David that would be dropped off in the summer months and then picked up by mom and dad at the end of summer. Yeah. And what's believed is that they simply dropped him off, said the kid's crazy and dangerous and we can't handle him so that they could vacation or not have to deal with this kid when he's not in school, wow. people do this. I know it's, I know it's sad, but, uh, and it's something, you know, that nobody hey, wants to yeah. talk about, but what kind of people do this? 
pieces of shit. But it's very possible that his mother was a piece of shit and decided for whatever reason, willy nilly or, or something very serious that she didn't want her, her son. We have the, I look, look, you look, we have the, the statement from the hospital that when they were trying to encourage mom to spend time with her son that was institutionalized on one occasion, she's taking her current family on a swimming trip. And when asked by the hospital, well, why wouldn't you take check David out and take him with you? She says, I don't want to be around him. I wish he would drown. That's not the response of a loving, caring parent. The other thing that's weird, and we do know that some of these types, Captain, behave a different way in a, in a very structured environment where there's set rules, and, uh, and we can imagine that that's probably what was going on when young David was institutionalized by his mother. But we also have the, his time spent there is well documented. So these reports say that David Maust had no incidents of serious misbehavior during his years at the hospital. He has no documented incidents of lying, stealing, or out of control behavior. All stuff that, sh- that her, his mother reported to the hospital as the basis for committing her son. The hospital described David as generally, generally described David in their reports as an appealing, sensitive, and reliable child, but he was deeply disturbed by his parents' rejection. Yeah, you think? And preoccupied with the threat of abandonment. His father left the family when he was just eight, and then his mother Bitch. drops him off and has him institutionalized at the age of nine. When his mother was asked to be specific about the trouble she claimed David Mouse caused during his occasional home visits, she became evasive and stated that, quote, she just doesn't want him at home. All right, so much more to get to tomorrow for everything true crime. Check us out at truecrimegarage.com. Click on that store page and check out our Be Good, Be Kind, and Don't Litter shirt. And make sure you join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aw, let me just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not